What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. Broadcasting from Resistance Headquarters. Relentlessly fighting back against the clown dictator and his regime of deplorables. Never give up. Never surrender. This is the Bob Seska Show. Presented by BubbleGenius.com. From our nation's capital, it is Wednesday, September 18, 2019, and this is the interview edition of the Bob Seska Show on the Sexy Liberal Podcast Network. My guest today is someone you've probably retweeted a whole bunch of times over recent years, the great Aaron Rupar from Vox.com. He's uh, he's the Batman of Twitter videos, springing into action 24-7 to capture for all time the harrowing escapades of the clown dictator. Today we're going to talk about covering Trump's speeches, rallies, press gaggles, and chopper talks up close. So make sure to follow Aaron on Twitter at ATRupar and follow his reporting at box.com slash author slash Aaron dash Rupar. Links in the description. And if you like what you hear today, please support this podcast by subscribing at BobSuskaShow.com. All right, let's talk to Twitter video Batman, Aaron Rupar. Let's just jump right in. I, I know at any okay. minute uh, Trump's going to do like one of his chopper talks and you're going to have to dash off. And start oh, that playing. actually just happened. Oh, so, it did. He just... it, it, and it was pretty uneventful. He, he had the new um, national security advisor with him and um, they were heading, you know, he's in California. They, they were heading down to uh, the border. Yeah. And he did like a 10, 15 minute thing, but there wasn't a whole lot of news. Right, so. right. And why do you think he does those chopper talks instead of doing something inside where it's comfortable? He goes outside where it's uncomfortable, whether it's too hot or too freezing cold or raining, or you've got the Marine One uh, chopper revving up in the background. So there's that constant screeching noise as if he's got a margarita maker running right next to his head yeah. or something like that. Why do you think he does all of that? Why do you think he has those uh, those gaggles out there rather than doing it inside? I'd have to imagine it's just because that kind of allows him to um, sort of filter the questions to his liking. You know, he can just kind of move on if he doesn't like it or, yeah. you know, um, there's a little less, you know, accountability because he can always just pretend he didn't hear somebody or, you know, hop right on the plane. You know, so <laughs> I just think it kind of allows him to control the environment a little bit more, even though, um, you know, some of the visuals from those are kind of unfortunate for him where he's all sweaty and... <laughs> You know, I mean, it, it doesn't yeah. end up a lot of the time looking. You know, he's kind of standing with weird posture and things. Yeah, see, that's so, the other thing. I Because yeah. you've been following Donald Trump, like, in granular detail. You've been following him up close for the last, coming up on three years now plus. Uh, you know, there are so many of those little weird things that he does. And you mentioning his posture made me think of this, where he's got that he stands almost like on a 45 degree angle somehow defying yeah. the laws of gravity. Like, uh, what are some of the things that you have observed that he does all the time that just maybe you're oh. just so tired of looking at uh, tr all of Trump's oh, weird man. little glitches. Oh, there's so many. I mean, the one that leaps to mind right away because I recently did a compilation video of, of clips is him saying, we'll see what happens, um, <laughs> you know, like 25 times during every media availability <laughs> yeah. that he does. Yeah. And, um, you know, I think it's, you know, and I, I posted the video and I got a lot of responses that were kind of like, why is this news? Who cares? You know, but again, if you watch this guy all the time, um, it's, you know, it's a very kind of unusual tick that he has. I mean, another one is that um, sometimes when he is reading, 
he does this thing where um, if he kind of stumbles over a word, he'll sort of flare his hands out and get this um, kind of weird glazed over look in his eyes. Um, you know, and so, so those are two. Um, what he's doing is he's tr- he's doing uh, and I meant to do that. It's like when Pee Wee Herman's doing like the stunt bike riding and Pee Wee's Big Adventure and he hits the curb and flips over his bike and lands on the grass and rolls over, does a double flip and then stands up and goes, I meant to do that. When he said oranges instead of origins. Oh, God. He said oranges. Really, it's oranges. <laughs> of course, yeah, he made it worse and was... emphasized and underscored the screw up rather than just moving on and getting past it. Right. Yeah, that that to me. And so for people who aren't familiar, I think that was in like April. It was right around the time that the uh, Mueller report was yeah. being released. And he was trying to, it was during one of his media availabilities in the White House, and he was trying to urge people to look into the origins of the Mueller investigation, but he kept saying oranges, oranges, oranges. yeah. And you could kind of see, you know, as I was watching this and, you know, I kind of caught it the first time around, but then I went back and watched it again because it was so weird. And you could (laughs) see that there was kind of this look in his eyes, like he was kind of confused that the wrong word was coming out of his mouth and he circled back on it, you know, three or four times yes. to try and get it right. And he never did. He just kept saying oranges over and over again. <laughs> and, you know, I try not to um, wade too deeply. I mean, you know, there are Twitter accounts out there that I'm sure a lot of people are familiar with that kind of wade deep into the um, kind of armchair, you know, whether or not he, you know, what kind of cognitive decline he's suffering from. And I try <laughs> yeah. to kind of stay out of that because I'm not an expert. And obviously, you know, I don't want to recklessly speculate on that sort of stuff. But I mean, if you go back and watch, and I recently posted a video um, that kind of illustrated this, you know, if you watch his speeches and public comments that he made three or four years ago, you know, when he was running for president and then do kind of a side by side comparison with him now, um, there's been a noticeable change where his speaking is much more deliberate. Uh, the vocabulary is much more limited. Yeah. And uh, that that origins oranges thing was, <laughs> I think, one of the most stark illustrations of that, because yeah. it really was, you know, it would be, you know, if, if you were talking to uh, a family member of his age, you know, who did something like that. I mean, you would be legitimately concerned that, you know, something was wrong with them and oh, sure. you know, this guy's a president and, you know, and, and some of that obviously is just kind of, you know, he's 73 years old. So, um, some of that is just inevitable, but, um, yeah, yeah. you know, well, there's been a lot of moments like that. Well, he's 73 and he apparently never sleeps. Uh, apparently he figures sleep is a sign of weakness. I think that was uh, something that we read uh, this past uh, couple of days that <laughs> Yeah. sleeping is weakness in fact uh, it's such a weakness that he tries to keep his staff awake by blaring elton john music on the plane as he's going to and from you know rallies and campaign events or at least that's what he was doing in 2016 i don't know if he's still doing that on air force one but you know that video that you posted between him talking in 2015 2016 at a rally or i think that was his campaign announcement wasn't it i think he used his campaign announcement versus Uh, I think remarks he was giving uh, announcing the Space Force, the pseudo Space Force, the precursor to Space Force. Yeah, that was uh, it was shocking. And, I, you know, like you, I've got my face pressed up against the screen following his every time he's uh, speaking in public. And it was amazing to see the level of decline between those two things, because we see it in slow motion happening on a day to day basis. Yeah. There were, there were a lot of people who responded to that video by saying, well, you know, it's not an apples and apples comparison because during the campaign launch speech in 2015, he was speaking off the cuff and yeah. during the Space Force thing, he wasn't. But that's actually not true because the one part that I highlighted in that video of his Space Force speech was the one part that actually was off the cuff that he wasn't reading. And you could tell because he forgot um, you know, during that segment, um, what year he was inaugurated as president, he um, tr- he wanted to say 2017, but there was a big delay. You know, the, the, the correct response was 2017, but it took him a beat to kind of figure that out. I think he wanted yeah. to say 2016. Right. And so it really was actually, you know, an, an apples to apples thing. And, you know, I mean, again, you know, with the type of travel schedule that he keeps, the lack of sleep, 
Um, you know, none of that is, is particularly surprising, but, you know, it just kind of leads you to wonder what state of mind he's in when, you know, making decisions of war and peace and things like that. So, um, you know, it's a little bit concerning. So what did you make of yesterday's shit show in the Judiciary Committee? I know you were tracking that quite closely. In fact, yesterday was great because just before I started the show, you tweeted out a video of Doug Collins, like, I don't know, going on a like a five-second oh, marble-mouthed riff that was almost <laughs> entirely unintelligible. And that was, I was like, oh, thank God he got it. Aaron got it. I can always rely on Aaron to grab all of these clips uh, that I can then make audio clips of and use it on my show. So um, what did you make of everything that went down yesterday? Uh, you know, I mean, I was intrigued by it. I mean, I thought there were good moments, you know, especially at the end when, the attorney uh, whose name is escaping me right now, but the attorney who was working with the House Dems. Yeah, Burke. Um, you know, when, when, yes, Burke. When, uh, when he was grilling Lewandowski, I mean, you know, he kind of cornered him into admitting that he had lied uh, when he went on TV and said that um, he played no role, you know, in Trump's effort to undermine the Mueller investigation when it turns out, you know, according to the Mueller report, that Lewandowski did play a role, even, even if he didn't follow through with Trump's direction to, you know, pass along a note to Sessions asking him to unrecuse himself. Um, you know, he was still a player in that whole saga. And so obviously it'd be problematic to acknowledge that he had lied to Mueller since that was a sworn statement that he gave. And so Lewandowski was basically forced, you know, um, compelled by his own words that he had said in MSNBC to admit that he lied to the media. And, you know, I thought that was a good moment. There were a couple other ones like that, but you know, ultimately, I'm just not really sure where this is headed uh, yeah. from the Democratic standpoint. You know, it's kind of this quasi impeachment hearing. But, you know, I don't really think anything that happened yesterday moved the ball in any meaningful sense yeah. um, for Democrats who are you know, interested in possibly impeaching the president. So, you know, I enjoyed kind of the spectacle of it. Um, you know, of course, Lewandowski just openly trolling some of the Democratic members by, you know, refusing to read um, parts of the Mueller report that mm -hmm. were, you know, that were projected on screens around the hearing room. Uh, some of the, you know, the disrespect that he was oozing. Um, you know, on one hand, it's kind of troubling to see, um, you know, the disdain with which Trump and his uh, enablers, you know, regard Congress. But, you know, on the other hand, it made for kind of a good spectacle. Yeah. Um, but beyond that, um, and, you know, so I don't want to be overly dismissive because I, you know, it's not like I have any brilliant ideas for what <laughs> Democrats should be doing instead. Yeah. Um, you know, and I'm glad I'm glad that they held the hearing, but I'm just not really sure what they expected to come out of that. Nor do I think a day later that, you know, it really moved the ball at all. So, mm -hmm. um, you know, it made for good political theater. Um, you know, it was quite long. It was about a six hour hearing ultimately. And the really good stuff I thought came right at the end, uh, which was sort of unfortunate as well, because most of the major TV networks only carried the beginning of it, which was more of kind of the, um, you know, the cluster uh, at the beginning. But uh, yeah, I'm just not really sure what, you know, and nor do I really, nor am I sure that even Jerry Nadler um, knows what, you know, what he's trying to accomplish with hearings of this sort. But, you know, I'll at least say that it was an improvement over the hearing that the House Judiciary held a number of months ago that was basically a glorified MSNBC segment when they had, you know, some attorneys. And yeah. it was after, you know, it was after the um, the Mueller report was released, but before Mueller's testimony. So at least it was kind of a step in the right direction to actually get a former, uh, you know, a former aide to Trump's campaign, um, who was obviously involved in some of these episodes after Trump took office to testify. But you know, again, even when they kind of cornered him into uh, admitting that he had lied or, you know, some of the contradictions that um, Lewandowski was trapped in, they weren't major episodes. And so, um, you know, I just think, unfortunately, as long as, you know, Mitch McConnell is the Senate majority leader, this is sort of the, the issue is that how do you hold these people accountable? And I think yesterday kind of illustrated the difficulties involved in trying to do that.
Yeah, yeah. And I think uh, part of the purpose of that behavior by Corey Lewandowski was, of course, to perform for the president. And I think a lot of those guys, Jim Jordan, Mark Meadows, uh, we weren't treated to Louis Gohmert yesterday, which is usually a a talk about a shit show. But uh, Doug Collins, of course, they're all doing like their best impression of Trumpism, basically. And then the story becomes their horrendousness rather than some of the content that actually came out of that thing, and especially during that uh, the Q and A, the thirty minute Q and A with uh, the lawyer Burke uh, toward the end. Yeah, yeah. And so I feel like one of my biggest concerns with Trump is establishing that kind of behavior and weaponizing it in a way that you know our politics becomes entirely about who can out dick move the other side. <laughs> and I was, kind yeah, of, I was in that <laughs> regard. I was. I, it's I'm I got to tell you I'm conflicted. Half of me thinks uh, the Democrats were right to kind of take the high road and be the grown ups in the room, but on the other hand, I feel like, well, maybe Nadler should have more directly threatened Lewandowski with contempt, uh, something along those lines. Uh, yeah, yeah, and he still seemed kind of reticent to go there. You know, it came up a couple times during the hearing, and you know, even at the end. Uh, Nadler himself brought it up and kind of, you know, held it as a possibility, held it out as a possibility that a road that they could still go down, but aren't at this time. And but that's kind of the sense. I mean, there was there was an exchange between uh, Lewandowski and Sheila Jackson Lee, where, you know, Lewandowski was being openly disrespectful to her. um, And she was trying to ask him very basic yes or no questions, which he refused to answer. Yeah. And there was a moment um, that was captured when the clips I posted, I think I only posted one involving Sheila Jackson Lee, where, you know, she, she kind of started to say, you need to answer my questions or else. Uh, but she didn't quite get to the or else part because they're really, you know, it's like, he's just not going to answer your questions. And what are you going to do? Yeah. And, you know, I think that's kind of that level of defiance. You know, I was a little bit too, I'm a little bit too young to have been around during the Watergate hearings. But, you know, my sense having read about them is that, um, there wasn't quite that same level of disdain for the whole process and disrespect. You know, I could be wrong about that, but, you know, it strikes me as kind of uniquely Trumpian thing. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the, the type of disdain that we saw from Corey Lewandowski, where he's just refusing to answer questions, refusing even to play along, you know, and just being openly dis- disrespectful and kind of crapping on the whole process. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, that's and I just I, I question whether Democrats are really equipped at this stage uh, to deal with that because it seems like, you know, they're still kind of holding out hope that these people will engage with them in good faith. And, you know, I just think the evidence at this point is pretty overwhelming that that's not going to happen. I, I mean, it seems like the writing is on the wall. The Donald Trump is going to go down in history and knock on wood. I'm not getting happy about this by any stretch of the imagination. I'm not getting complacent. But the fact is that uh, at least the way it looks right now, that Donald Trump's going to go down in history as being a failure of a president. At the very least, uh, he's going to be regarded by history as, yeah. a, as being a failed, horrendous, awful president. Um, why do you think these guys are so willing to risk their reputations and careers by so vigorously wrapping their arms around this guy? I mean, why do you, what's motivating them? Is it because it can't quite be his popular because he's not really that popular. I mean, in, in context compared to other presidents at this point in time, I don't know what it could be. I have some ideas, but, uh, what do you think? I mean, why do you think they're, they're just uh, trying to appease Donald Trump so vigorously. Yeah. I mean, it's a really great question. And I think part of it to me, and this is, you know, I, I don't know how true this is, but, you know, I even experienced this in my own life, you know, just how siloed all of our um, kind of worlds are in a way, because, um, you know, for instance, like a lot of the feedback I get, you know, is very complimentary and people appreciate my work and things like that. But, you know, Every now and then I'll post something that, you know, even yesterday I posted an article that I wrote about how Fox News is falsely talking about this latest Kavanaugh story that broke over the weekend. And they keep saying over and over and over that the New York Times corrected their story and kind of use this, you know, oh, they corrected it. It was wrong when that's not actually, you know, the accurate way to discuss what happened. They added an editor's note that added additional context, but they didn't walk back any of the claims that was in the initial report. And it kind of turned into this thing today, you know, with right wingers where, you know, it's just getting pilloried on Twitter over this, or, you know, it's like people think that I'm kind of splitting hairs and that, um, 
you know, really it was a huge mistake by the New York Times. And, you know, this just is a further, further evidence that their credibility is gone and all this. And, you know, it just kind of, sometimes it strikes me that, um, you know, the world on the right wing is just kind of a separate thing unto itself. And I'm yeah. sure people on the right kind of view the left in that way too. So, you know, when you kind of frame that question about Lewandowski and what's, you know, why he is kind of so loyal to Trump, I mean, you know, there's a pretty good chance that he probably wrapped up his testimony yesterday and went down with, you know, Matt Gates and Jim Jordan to the Trump International Hotel and had some beers or whatever. <laughs> and everybody who approached them at the hotel was probably complimenting his performance and telling him how awesome he is. Yeah. And so, you know, Trump's approval rating might be, you know, 40 percent, but, you know, 40 percent of however many millions of people live in the United States is a lot of people. And I just think, you know, who would Corey Lewandowski be if it wasn't for Donald Trump? I mean, I had never heard of him before <laughs> right, he became right. Trump's campaign manager. So, you know, this was kind of his meal ticket. And I'm sure that, um, you know, there's a little bit of glory to be gained in kind of turning against Trump. And, you know, we saw that a little bit with Michael Cohen. Um, you know, there's been a few figures kind of like that who have turned on Trump and become outspoken, you know, I guess Omarosa to a certain extent, yeah. people like that. But, you know, for a guy like Lewandowski, who's considering a U.S. Senate run, I mean, if he breaks with Trump, that's the end of that. And, you know, it's probably far fetched anyway. But I think for a lot of people, you know, Trump was kind of their meal ticket to relevance. Mm -hmm. And um, I think there's still enough of a veneer of legitimacy with, you know, Trump can still kind of say, well, you know, the job market's as good as it has been in uh, 50 years. The, uh, you know, the stock market's doing well. You know, he, he can still point to things here and there that are going well. You know, he hasn't gotten us involved in any new uh, wars or anything like that. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, I still think you said that, you know, I, I certainly think Trump will go down in history as being extremely dangerous and overmatched for the office that he's in. But, you know, I do think there is still a scenario um, where if he loses next year and you know, ends up leaving office, which obviously there's some questions about whether he'll do <laughs> yeah, that or not. Right. But, you know, I think there is still a scenario that could unfold where he loses and, you know, 100 years from now is regarded as kind of this buffoonish figure who said a lot of terrible things and obviously did a lot of terrible things, you know, including family separations and things of that sort. So I'm not minimizing that, but right. you know, I don't think I don't think he's left the country at this stage completely in the ditch. But you know, we're, again, it gets back to kind of what we talked about earlier. I mean, you're only one bad decision away from, you know, we're only one invasion of Iran away from, uh, yeah. you know, catastrophe possibly. So that is kind of a terrifying thing. But you know, in terms of your question about why these people are so loyal to Trump, you know, particularly Lewandowski. I just think that, um, again, you know, even if Trump is unpopular by the standard of modern presidents, there are still a lot of people who adore him and who thought that uh, Corey Lewandowski did a great job yesterday. So you and I might watch it and kind of think that this guy is a buffoon and, you know, wonder why he's being so disrespectful and things like that. But, you know, there's 35% of the country who thinks that's awesome. So, yeah, you know, I, I do think that, Despite the fact that, you know, with social media and, and the access that we have to everybody's opinions at this point and, you know, the, the, the reality that we can engage with a lot of people online instantaneously, you know, the irony is that in some ways um, it's just led to people being even more siloed off than they might have been previously. Oh, yeah, exactly. In fact, we're in the age of niche followings where you can have a pretty good career with a relatively narrow uh, compartmentalized following, almost like a bubble kind of a fishbowl type following. And that may be the case. That may be what Corey Lewandowski and, and some of these other Republicans are going for by wrapping their arms around Trump. But I just see Donald Trump as being this guy who at any minute, sort of like what Patton Oswalt says, like at any minute, he could just blurt the N-word and whip his dick out at the Christmas tree lighting. You know what I mean? And then suddenly, yeah. like, where are they going to go? But then uh, then I look back at the, uh, the immediate couple of years after George W. Bush left office and every Republican going, who was president before? I forget. Yeah. Was there, did we have someone before Obama? I don't remember. History started yeah. on January 20th, 2009. So uh, that right. is probably going to be the MO with Trump, too. They're going to distance themselves as soon as he steps out of the White House, and that'll be it. Um, yeah, and I think and I think you see some, you know, there are some, uh, some cracks in the armor, so to speak, where, I mean, I, I think you're kind of seeing this with... Um, 
the trade war and how this has kind of led to, you know, the slowing of the global economy, which now obviously is kind of affecting the U.S. And, mm. you know, I think it's interesting to kind of think about, you know, if Trump had never gone down this road of a trade war and the tariffs on China, which led to you know, needing to bail out the farmers and, you know, how there's kind of a little bit of a shell game going on there where, you know, you kind of plug one leak, but it create, creates another problem. You only have so many fingers to plug these leaks. And, um, you know, so... I do think that, um, you know, that these are things that to this point haven't led to, you know, inflation skyrocketing or un unemployment skyrocketing. But, you know, it certainly seems like there's been some cooling of the economy at the very least. And so, you know, obviously that creates a headwind for Trump heading into 2020. But I think, you know, if uh, Trump decided tomorrow to resign for whatever reason, um, you know, he'd certainly go down as one of our worst presidents. But you know, I think you could make a pretty strong case that George W. Bush was even worse. And so, yeah. um, you know, I guess that we have to be uh, grateful for the small things that, you know, at least we haven't, uh, at least Trump hasn't uh, gotten us involved in World War III quite yet. Okay, we'll return to our conversation with Aaron Rupar here in just a second. But first, let's talk about Plexiderm. Picture your face in the mirror just for a second. You see all those wrinkles around your eyes. How about the crow's feet, those large under eye bags? Now imagine that they're gone. And I'm not talking about some risky, expensive plastic surgery. I'm talking about a topical solution that disappears all of those things. It's called Plexiderm, a clinically studied serum that visibly eliminates your wrinkles, crow's feet, and under eye bags in just a matter of minutes. It's the edge you've been looking for. And if you don't believe me, well, I didn't believe me either until we got our first canister of Plexiderm here at the house. Kimberly Johnson and I both tried it and we were amazed. It doesn't take uh, months to work, maybe kind of, sort of, I'm talking about 10 minutes, 10 minutes to look 10 years younger. Plexiderm can give you the confidence you'll need to be yourself at work or out with friends. The best part is Plexiderm goes on clear, so nobody's going to know that you're using it Unless, of course, you tell them, and honesty is always the best policy. Go to triplexiderm.com and use my code SEXYLIBERAL for 50% off plus an additional $10 off. That's right, 50% off plus an extra $10 off. This offer is also available by calling 1-800-685-1292. That's 1-800-685-1292. And mentioning the code SEXYLIBERAL. Plexiderm is backed by a 30-day money-back guarantee. Visit triplexiderm.com today and use the code SEXYLIBERAL at checkout. That's triplexiderm.com. Bob Seska. The Bob Seska Show. You know, getting into your particular process for capturing these videos, I mean, how are you able to so rapidly go through something that's happening live and then extracting... I mean, just the best stuff out of there, all of the material that's either important in terms of newsmaking or important in terms of underscoring something ridiculous that the president is doing. How do you how are you able to stay on top of that and, and churn that out uh, so regularly on uh, especially on Twitter? Yeah, I would say it's more of an art than a science. Um, <laughs> a lot of reps at this point, you know, for instance, like with Trump's rallies, um, I kind of have a pretty good sense of the rhythm of them at this point. You know, he always starts by taking a cheap shot at the media, which gets the crowd to boo. Yeah. Then he has a lengthy section, which is usually the most boring section where he's kind of, you know, generically talking about cutting taxes and regulations and things like that. But then towards the end is when he usually strays off script and, you know, will say things that will result in racist chants or, you know, <laughs> any of the, uh, the spectacles that we can think of that have happened at Trump rallies. And so I kind of, and I'm watching, the rallies in particular, I sort of have a sense of when I really need to pay attention and when I can kind of uh, respond to emails or things like that with kind of one ear still listening to what he's saying. But, you know, with a lot of these Oval Office events, I mean, I just try, you know, when the video comes through, um, you know, because there's always a delay between when the actual event happens and when the, the pool video is released. Yeah. So you usually kind of have a sense from, you know, the initial reports of the reporters who are there if Trump says something that's really newsworthy and then you can kind of, you know, really be looking for that. But they're generally pretty short, you know, between 20 and 30 minutes. So I just try and really kind of stay focused on what he's saying so that, you know, if there is a subtle contradiction or something like that, I can be sure to notice it right away. Yeah. But uh, yeah, it's definitely more the more of an art than a science. <laughs> um, a, but I, I think just having all of the reps helps. And, you know, we use a program called Snapstream, which makes it really easy just to um, clip videos and post them quite quickly. Yeah. And, you know, I have gotten better and better at it. I mean, even last night, um, I, I couldn't stay at my computer till the end of the Lewandowski hearing, but I kind of finished up my 
thread of clips on my phone. And, you know, the, the software is at such a point now where you can, I can watch it on my phone and clip and post to Twitter right from there. So um, a oh, lot wow. of it is just kind of, yeah, yeah. So, I mean, you know, so it's, it's gotten easier to do stuff like that. But, um, you know, with Trump, like I said, it kind of depends on the setting. Uh, the rallies tend to be quite similar to each other. And so I kind of have a sense for that at this point. And um, with the Oval Office events, it's just, you know, they're usually pretty short. So I just try and stay focused and power through them. Right. How the hell do you have a personal life? Uh, it seems to me <laughs> as if like he's always randomly popping up. It could end up happening at nine o'clock at night. I know his uh his rally in Albuquerque was pretty late in the day the other night. Yeah. I mean, are you constantly on call like you're uh, an ER surgeon or something <laughs> like that? Or are you able to find a, a space to actually do some shit that doesn't involve uh, immersing yourself in Donald Trump? Oh, yeah. I mean, I, I you know, I'm able to I'm sure my wife is kind of annoyed because um <laughs> Even the Albuquerque night, you know, she was kind of wanting to hang out with me and I'm, yeah. you know, at my computer watching Trump. And and so these days when I'm watching Trump at home, I use headphones because <laughs> I think the sound of his voice kind of annoys her at this point. But, yeah. um, you know, actually, it, it's kind of predictable when he's going to have media availabilities if you look at his schedule, because, you know, as we talked about earlier, it's whenever he leaves the White House, um, you know, he's doing one of his helicopter deals. Yeah. And so, you know, and that's, you know, his schedule in terms of when he's coming and going like that is public, you know, throughout the day. So mm. I have a pretty good sense for that. And, you know, the rallies aren't at this stage, at least so frequent that, um, you know, that it's a big problem. I mean, he's having maybe like one or two a month at this stage. I'm sure that'll ramp up a little bit. Um, but, you know, to me, it's just kind of the sense that it's kind of historic stuff. You know, I mean, it really is. I still haven't gotten totally used to the spectacle of, you know, a president of the United States being on stage and basking in racist chants directed at a congresswoman or, right. you know, any of these things that um, if any other president, even if Bush, you know, had done stuff like that, it would have been huge, huge, you know, multiple news cycles would have been dominated by it. And that is kind of, you know, I experienced this, this even at Vox quite a bit where, you know, people and understandably so are kind of numb to a lot of Trump's excesses at this point. I mean, for instance, just before I started talking with you, um, I wrapped up a story, and I'm sure you probably saw this, about Trump retweeting earlier today um, a tweet that alleged that Ilhan Omar was partying oh, yeah. on the anniversary of 9-11, which it turns out that the video of her dancing to a Lizzo song at an, at an event was actually shot on September 13th. And so, you know, this fringe conspiracy guy, Terrence Williams, who Trump has retweeted a few times now, um, lied and said that this was shot on September 11th and showed Ilhan Omar celebrating the anniversary of September 11th. Jesus. And, you know, it's it's really far out there. And, you know, we actually had, you know, we had a conversation about whether we we're even going to cover it. And, you know, I think that kind of reflects just how normalized some of this stuff, even, you know, less than three years in at this point has become. So, you know, to me, I'll always remember as long as I live that very first day that Trump was president, um, which started with that really bizarre speech that he gave at the CIA. And then uh, I think that was all the same day, the inauguration, you know, and then the, the Sean Spicer press conference, um, you know, and, yeah. and so I had a sense and I was actually working that day. And um, I believe it was a Saturday, but, you know, there was a sense right from the beginning that, um, this whole, you know, the whole experience was going to be deeply weird. And it certainly lived up to that. But, you know, the other thing, too, is, you know, as I'm kind of thinking about this, and I don't know if, Bob, if you remember this, but, um, of course, Trump ran a really ugly campaign in a lot of respects. And, oh, yeah. you know, I'll never forget also the 2016 RNC and how, you know, kind of dystopian of a spectacle that was, yeah, um, right. you know, and at the time thinking that Trump really had no chance of winning. But, then when he won, um, that very first speech that he gave at like two in the morning Eastern time at Trump Tower um, was actually one of the more normal speeches I think he's ever delivered as a politician. Yeah, he kind of you know, looked, he said, he, he looked afraid. He kind of looked stunned yeah. and frightened in that moment. And he kind of said the right things. You know, I mean, he I remember he, you know, um, complimented Hillary on her campaign and promised to be a president for all Americans and you know, kind of the cliches that we expect from our politicians, or at least used to expect. 
And um, so I remember kind of going to bed that night, obviously being kind of worried and, you know, horrified that Trump had won, but kind of thinking, you know, maybe he will make an attempt to kind of be normal. And then it wasn't even, you know, a week or so later that he started in with the tweets about how, you know, comparing the CIA with Nazi Germany and things uh -huh. like that. And so it became clear before his inauguration that, you know, that particular speech was kind of an aberration. But, um, you know, so for me in terms of, you know, because I get people ask me that all the time, you know, how can you tolerate watching, <laughs> yeah. watching that much Trump? I get the, sa um, I get the same like, question myself. Yeah. Yeah. And to me, it's like, you know, I mean, I'm a journalist and I, you know, it's very historic stuff and sure it's kind yeah. of dark and yep. it's dark and scary for sure. But, you know, there's also for me personally, um, like I'm at home watching these rallies, you know, I'm not actually physically there. I don't feel endangered in any way. I'm not traveling. And so it kind of gives me, you know, in some ways more freedom to kind of say what I think and to be kind of unfiltered about it because I am friends with some of the White House, you know, pool members who are at the, actually at the White House. And obviously they need to be even, even, you know, in confidence with people, they have to be kind of measured in what they say uh, to maintain access, you know, because that's part of their job and that isn't part of my job. So that, that does come with certain advantages. But, you know, just in terms of the quantity of Trump, you know, it's to me, it's just still kind of a world historical spectacle. And I'm not sure uh, even if he ends up <laughs> as he likes to, quote unquote, joke about, you know, if he ends up serving four terms or whatever. <laughs> right. um, I'm not sure that sense will ever, you know, I'm not sure that will ever change for me. I think to me, it'll still kind of be the stuff of history. And I'm fascinated by that. Is the normalization because it's happening, and I, I think it was ultimately inevitable, as bad as it is, and in, in terms of just at least the way I'm looking at it, um, it was bound to happen at some point that we would just become accustomed to his behavior. Do you think that that's uh, liberating insofar as? making life a little less stressful, like a little less worrying about what Donald Trump's going to say from minute to minute, or is that damaging? Is the normalization either liberating or damaging? Ooh, yeah. You know, well, I kind of, I'm sort of of two minds about this because mm -hmm. there still is to me the reality that what the president says matters. You know, I mean, for yeah. instance, earlier this week, not even just been yesterday, um, when he was calling on everybody at the New York Times who was involved in the Kavanaugh story to resign yeah. on Twitter, um, you know, people kind of sloughed that off or made fun of him. Um, you know, and he's, he's posted a lot of tweets like that, the I hereby order type thing. And, you know, so I think we have kind of become numb. You know, I remember the first I'm trying to remember what it was, but shortly after he was inaugurated, I remember he called for someone's job on Twitter. And it was like a big deal. I remember I was at Think Progress at the time and we kind of scrambled to cover that because it was like, wow, the president is using his platform to attack private citizens and call for them to lose their jobs. And wow, isn't that, you know, really disconcerting? And, you know, now it's like kind of a punchline. Um, and I, you know, but I think so on one hand, I think I can certainly understand how people who are not journalists um, would. And I get this from my friends, you know, who aren't journalists that they think the whole Trump thing is kind of this circus and you can kind of safely ignore it. <laughs> and um, I can certainly understand how that's kind of an appealing way to process things. But, yep. um, you know, it is also the case that um, you know, what the president says is one of the most powerful people in the world matters. Yes. And so, you know, I think I don't really for me, I don't think it's really a, a helpful way to go about it, sort of just ignoring his tweets or things like that or, you know, it's one thing during the 2016 campaign to reflect on, you know, CNN showing the empty podium and things like that, mm. you know, that um, sort of legitimized him or, you know, made him this kind of attraction um, at a point in which what he said wasn't quite as important as it is now. But the reality is now he's the president. And so um, I don't begrudge people if the way, you know, if they kind of deal with the whole Trump thing is just to sort of tune it out and only pay attention to the actual policies or to how what he's doing is affecting people, you know, beyond what he says on social media. But um, for me, you know, I, I still kind of have this sense that we should care about the things that the president says. Um, but also, I mean, I, I think it would be naive not to acknowledge that, you know, Trump kind of plays people like me a lot of the time. You know, I do think he kind of generates distractions to change the topic mm -hmm. or, um, you know, just to kind of rile people up. And I think, you know, uh, we saw that with um, the whole Sharpie thing recently where, you know, <laughs> yeah, by the end yeah. of that news cycle, he was posting cat videos 
uh, kind of, you know, Jesus <laughs> mocking Christ. people, you know. So <laughs> I think that was a pretty clear example where, you know, he kind of certainly was in on it and sort of trolling people by the end of it. But, you know, even that, I mean, I think in some ways that story was kind of an interesting encapsulation of the whole Trump thing, because it's really disconcerting if the federal government is spreading misinformation about, you know, weather reports involving hurricanes. I mean, you, know, you can imagine how that could be a really dangerous thing and you oh, know, yeah. lead to either hysteria or people not taking the proper precautions. And so um, it certainly isn't something to dismiss, but the whole thing was so silly and so petty, you know, that Trump was so upset over just the, the most minor instance of what he perceived to be disloyalty. Mm-hmm. Um, so it kind of, you know, on one hand, you know, there were some pretty serious stakes, um, at least in the sense of setting a precedent for, for things that could be more serious down the line. Um, but on the other hand, you know, the whole story was kind of a sideshow. So um, I guess, it, you know, had you safely tuned, had you just completely ignored that whole thing, I don't think you'd be less informed as a citizen for mm-hmm. it at this point. But, um, you know, the next time it might, the stakes might actually be higher where, you know, um, there's an evacuation of an area that isn't actually going to be hit by a hurricane or vice versa. And it really messes with people's lives. So, um yeah, that's the way that I think about it, at least. Well, it's uh, it's really panic inducing sometimes for me because I feel like he's opening up all these doors for presidential behavior, all exposing all kinds of loopholes. And, and uh, you know, I see guys like Andrew Yang in particular, like uh, who yeah. is kind of taking advantage of the fact that Donald Trump has broken through that, you know, kind of crazy person, CEO, president uh, glass ceiling. And now Andrew Yang is kind of taking advantage of that by throwing his hat in the ring as well, expecting that we all, well, it's normalized now that we've got these kind of straight-talking CEO uh, presidents, these political tourists, and so now I can do that too. Yeah, and and I am kind of concerned, you know, um, on a slightly separate note, but I mean, you know, the the possibility of a a Biden-Trump 2020 does, you know, concerns me. (laughs) Yeah, Um, me too. Just in that I don't think Biden is really, you know, my own opinion is that I'm not sure he's best equipped to kind of um, showcase uh, some of Trump's failings. And Uh, so I I am kind of concerned, you know, with that with that on the horizon. I mean, I know there's a long way to go with the the Democratic primary process there and the nomination process. Mm -hmm. But um, I think that's one of the things, you know, for lefties kind of looking forward to next year. that's a little bit concerning is just, you know, what that matchup is going to look like. And if yeah. there really is a candidate who who is equipped to, um, you know, to defeat Trump. Well, I'm hoping at least the Democrats will stay away from Trumpism. I know the temptation is there <laughs> yeah. because flooding the zone with scandals seems to work quite well for Donald Trump. Oh, yeah. But um, so far, so good. I mean, other than maybe Andrew Yang, um, it's really just the Republicans who I think are lined up to really seize upon Trumpism. But you know what? Be- before I let you go, I got to ask about your other nemesis and a guy who happens to be my nemesis, too, uh, in a certain respect. How did you end up pissing off Glenn Greenwald? And oh, it's God. not a, not a hard yeah. thing to do. It's very easy to piss off Glenn Greenwald. But how did how did you end up doing that? Well, it's funny. And, you know, I'm almost sort of embarrassed to admit this at this point. But, you know, going back 10, 15 years ago, Glenn was one of my favorite journalists. Oh, my God. Um, yeah. You know, when, when yeah, when he was writing about the Bush administration, mm-hmm. I mean, all of his columns, I think at the time he was at uh, Salon. Yeah. Were must reads. And mm-hmm. I would read every single thing that he published. And. You know, I think it was kind of in my specific case, kind of a perfect storm, because at the time that he and I started feuding, I was working at the Center for American Progress for Think Progress. Right. But that's been a longtime nemesis. Of course, he, he and Neera Tandon are mortal enemies. And so, <laughs> you know, I kind of got painted with that brush right away. But, you know, I think for kind of obvious reason, he's sort of uncomfortable with people posting clips of his appearances on Fox News. And, <laughs> yeah. you know, yeah. I mean... <laughs> The, the fact is, I mean, the guy just doesn't have a ton of self-awareness where, um, you know, you can look through, for instance, he, um, you know, is the world's biggest critic of, um, you know, kind of making general smears about categories of people unless, you know, that person works for CAP and then you can smear them because they work for <laughs> yeah. CAP sort of thing. Um, so, you know, it's there's still, you know, I think about half of the tweets he posts and obviously he's done really important work, I think in Brazil with uh, Bolsonaro and Mm -hmm. kind of exposing some of the corruption that's going on down there. So I don't want to kind of completely dismiss him, but um, you know, this latest kick that he's on where, you know, 
Trump really isn't that bad. Look at how bad Bolsonaro is. I mean, Ugh. to me, it's very easy just to kind of say they're both bad. Mm-hmm. And I've even pointed that out to him, you know, and, and he'll, he'll retort with some sort of personal attack calling me <laughs> Vox boy or whatever. But, <laughs> you know, I think it. it just kind of began with, um, you know, um, me working at the Center for American Progress and kind mm-hmm. of pushing back on some of his tweets, which led to kind of escalating personal attacks on his end. And, you know, in recent years, as he's been going on Fox News with regularity, I think he gets kind of resentful that um, I'm paying close attention to that. And, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, the fact of the matter is I wouldn't necessarily have a problem with him going on Tucker Carlson if he was going on there and kind of pushing back on Tucker Carlson's white nationalism and, you know, and yeah. doing more of an adversarial interview. But for anybody who's watched him on that show, I mean, it's like the two, you know, it's like they're kind of best friends from childhood, you know. <laughs> It's very chummy and um, very, um, you know, very agreeable with each other. And so um, I think those are and, and I can't really completely explain that behavior on his part, other than he seems so deeply invested in discrediting the Democratic Party that, you know, it's kind of this reflexively contrarian thing where, you know, Dems are bad. And, um, you know, he almost seems more committed to the idea that Democrats are bad than Trump is bad or that Republicans are bad. Yeah. And um, so he just kind of, you know, he contorts himself kind of accordingly to never, you know, unless it's Ilhan Omar, AOC, um, you know, if it's any sort of a centrist Democrat, um, I, you know, I, I, he gives very few nice things to say about those people. And he seems very committed to that. So, um mm-hmm. I don't really know. I mean, he seems at this point to um, just, you know, think that the work that I do isn't worth anything because, um, you know, he seems to think that even though we have a president who's obsessed with TV and, um, you know, does a ton of TV interviews and people from his administration are on Fox News constantly, that somehow that's not worth paying attention to. But um, at this point, I, I've noticed that you obviously, you know, uh, <laughs> you're pretty public with your criticisms of him as well. And yeah. you know, there was a time maybe five years ago where I'd been horrified by Glenn Greenwald attacking me on Twitter. But at this point, um, <laughs> I'm sort of over it because I feel like he's, you know, he's done a lot of damage to his reputation. And, um, you know, the fact is that he was collaborating with Russian intelligence assets during the 2016 campaign to do hit pieces on Hillary Clinton. So, yep. That's something that um, he has to live with. By the way, I like the idea of Glenn Greenwald and Tucker Carlson as two little kids for some reason. The idea (laughs) of thinking that that someone needs to make an animated series. They could call it like A-Hole Babies or something like that. Remember Muppet Babies? (laughs) Just like Glenn Greenwald and Tucker Carlson as little kids in like a a clubhouse uh, yelling about how terrible the Democrats are. (laughs) Well, they're about the same age and, you know, their interviews, they're always so pleased with the points that each other, you know, that, that each of them make and you know and glenn kind of likes to you know he always kind of likes to whenever you whenever you criticize him you know it's like he's got them uh on his desktop you know ready to post (laughs) at any moment the the screen cap of uh obama on the bill o'reilly show or you know any democrat who's ever gone on fox news as if that's you know some sort of huge reputation of Mm -hmm. idea that going on fox news and chumming around tucker carlson is bad i mean I, i remember the obama interview with Bill O'Reilly and, you know, Bill O'Reilly was going after him and Obama was pushing back and, um, you know, and, and that's fine. I don't necessarily have a problem with that. Um, you know, I do think in general, it's bad to kind of validate Fox, Fox news and go on, you know, going on, there's a form of legitimizing what they're doing, Yeah. but you know, those sorts of interviews are very different from what happens when Glenn goes on Tucker and they sort of chum around with each other. So for whatever reason, that's the way that Glenn, wants to conduct his business. I will note it's actually been a couple months now, I think since he's been on Tucker's show. So I'm not sure if at some, you know, if he's had a change of heart, he certainly hasn't, you know, he certainly hasn't um, acknowledged as much on Twitter or anywhere else that I've seen. But uh, he also, he also to me seems like an extremely stubborn person. So yeah, a little bit. um, Yeah. (laughs) You know, you know why I think he's threatened by you, Aaron is because video doesn't lie. I mean, if you were posting your opinion of Glenn Greenwald, he could use semantic tricks and whatever he does to, you know, try to wiggle out of that. But you can't wiggle out of just showing a video of him being a dick with Tucker Carlson on Fox News Channel. That is uh, unimpeachable. I think that's why you end up under his skin so much. Yeah. Well, you know, you just, I, I can't imagine the worldview that 
would lead someone to be kind of this progressive, you know, and I, I kind of want to use progressive in quotes because, you mm-hmm. know, uh, I'm not sure, you know, there are some issues where he's very progressive and yeah. others where I don't think he's, it's he's more like, le- like left libertarian, I think is the yeah, general term. Right. You know, but I mean, he's gone on Laura Ingraham show when yeah. he goes on Fox news, Fox promotes him. Um, and so it's just a very, you know, there, it's just a very kind of, um, there's a, a very com- complex worldview, I guess I would say, to mm-hmm. maybe maybe charitably, because I'm not sure how much he's thinking through the implications of his actions. But again, you know, I think part of it is just kind of that reflexive, you know, stubbornness that he has too. Where, um, you know, the the first time that he, you know, the next time he admits that he was wrong about something on Twitter will be pretty much the first time that I've seen. So, mm-hmm. um, but I, I will note that, like I said, it, I've, I've been interested to observe that it's been a while since he has been on Fox. So. Um, I'm not sure exactly what's going on there, but, uh, the feud between he and I sort of continues. I mean, you know, when he posts something that I think is egregious, I'll push back on it. And I, and, you know, I almost kind of set my timer once I do that, because it's going to be about five to 10 minutes when, uh, Vox boy or, you know, some sort of disparaging Vox boy, yeah. you know, I'll get some sort of disparaging reply and, um, referring like to I you said, as uh, one- like referring to you as vast and pernicious. That was one of his things back in uh, 2013 when I was covering the Snowden story. <laughs> He's just always referring to, uh, me or anyone else as being vast and pernicious or drooling. Drooling was another one. Wow. Yeah. yeah. Oh, I'll have to, I'll have to go back. Well, you know, I was going to say it. I'll have to go back and look up those tweets, but I think he deleted, you know, like, I don't think those tweets are available. Oh, no, no, certainly not. I guess not. So uh, there'd be no record, I suppose, of, uh, well, I suppose your tweets, you know, that you're posting toward him are still up, but, um, yeah, unfortunately, you know, you need a way back machine or something to find Glenn's. Yeah. Oh my God. Certainly. Well, you know, um, we're out of time here, Aaron. Uh, but, uh, I just wanted to say, I- I'm so glad you landed at Vox. I, I was uh, disappointed to hear that, uh, think progress is having trouble. I think they're going away. Aren't they? Aren't they shutting down? They're gone. Yeah. Oh, God. It's already gone. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that was, I uh, think progress was an invaluable resource for so many, so many years, uh, blogging and so on. But, uh, you know, I, I really want to thank you for, being so inexhaustible um and that's that's one of the things i'm really impressed with is because it's so easy to get worn down by all of this especially with donald trump uh but you seem to be one of those guys who you know you can always rely on the fact that if trump is saying something crazy aaron rupar is going to be right there documenting it and i i am really intensely grateful for that and i'm sure my entire audience is too because i'm constantly grabbing your clips and using the audio from them on my show so thank you thank you for doing that well, thank you, Bob. I appreciate that a lot. It's really nice to come on the show with you, and I'd be happy to do it anytime down the road that you like. I will definitely take you up on that, my friend. Thank you so much. We'll see you on Twitter. Sounds good. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Hey, it's Stephanie Miller, America's original sexy liberal, if you don't count Miller Fillmore. Come join us for the Happy Hour Podcast. You're probably already doing plenty of drinking and swearing with this stain of a president in office. Well, join me and my celebrity and comedian friends for a raunchy, uncensored ride through politics and pop culture. Pants optional.